before I began the sermon in the last hour, I asked for a confession for how many of them thought that they were in the 1045 service. <laughs> and two people really did raise their hand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Fifteen years ago, Facebook did not exist. What? <laughs> and now, if the stat is right, there are 1.75 billion active users. There's a movie that came out about six or seven years ago called The Social Network, and it is loosely based on history. <laughs> loosely based on a biography of Mark Zuckerberg at his time at Harvard and also how Facebook came to be. And while that movie's plot really centers on the lawsuit surrounding whether or not he in fact came up with the idea or stole it from somebody else, I would say that Aaron Sorkin, who was the screenwriter for that show, was really out to ask this question. What motivated Mark to come up with Facebook? And I'm going to show you a scene that's going to go by really fast. It's the very first scene of the show, of the film. He is in a bar with a girlfriend of his, and they are talking about this thing at Harvard called the Final Club. They were social clubs, fraternities, sororities, are kind of an analogies for them, that were not just an opportunity to meet people, but they kind of represented a club that you wanted to be a part of because it was perceived that would set a trajectory for the rest of your life, depending on what club you became a part of. And so here in this scene, it's going to go fast, it's going to be loud, hey, it's a bar, okay? Oh, don't worry, I'll help you unpack it. But in this moment, you are going to hear, beneath the surface, if you will, this version of Mark Zuckerberg's story about what really motivated Facebook to come to be from a mind like his. So lean in, don't hold your breath, here we go. Lean in, huh? Obsessed with finals clubs. You have finals clubs OCD and you need to see someone about it. We'll prescribe you some sort of medication. You don't care if the side effects may include blindness. Final clubs, not finals clubs. And there's a difference between being obsessed and being motivated. Yes, there is. Well, you do. That was cryptic, so you do speak in code. I didn't mean to be cryptic. I'm just saying I need to do something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive and fun, and they lead to a better life. Teddy Roosevelt didn't get elected president because he was a member of the Phoenix Club. He was a member of the Porcellian, and yes, he did. Well, why don't you just concentrate on being the best you you can be? Did you really just say that? I was kidding. Goes fast. But even in those 52 seconds, you heard several things that reveal a certain measure of what these two people believe about themselves in reality. The distinction between being motivated and being obsessed. The desire to do something substantial in order to be noticed by people who were part of an exclusive club, believing that it would be through affiliation and belonging to them that your ticket would be written and your happiness would be found. And then it doesn't so much matter as you becoming the best you can be as it is who you are associated with in this life. Oh, friends, it goes fast and those things sound like stuff you show up that shows up in a film. But every one of those statements, every one of those themes reveals something you believe about foundational things. And the ironic thing, the trailer to that film is a, a cover 
by, of all groups, a Belgian woman's chorus singing a cover of a Radiohead song called I'm a Creep. It stuck with you. Don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice when I'm not around. You're so very special. I wish I were special. And then this is the chorus. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the world am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't belong here. It's not just a song. You might be, say it's the undergirding of what motivated Mark Zuckerberg to do everything he did to make Facebook. It might be undergirding a lot of the reasons you and I go on Facebook a lot because we want to make sure everybody knows that we're not a creep, that we're not a weirdo, that if we can just sort of curate our best self in some sort of public way, that maybe people will think that we belong here. There's all sorts of things that motivate what we do, what we do, but we all have beliefs and we all want to belong and we'll all do all sorts of things to belong and that will reveal our belief. We're listening to the prophet Isaiah of all voices, right? But in the passage we're going to listen about today, it's about two things. It's a passage about believing. It's a passage about belonging. When it comes to belief, it's not simply the content of what you believe or what you run to for refuge. I'm talking about belief in terms of what animates your living. And when it comes to belonging, the question from this passage will be, what qualifies you to be part of the people full of life? It's an ancient word, but I'm telling you, it has very modern relevance. And so we're going to listen to it. And we're going to listen for three things in it, in eight verses. One, what is the character of believing? Two, what is the basis for our belonging? And three, how might the idea of our belonging motivate our believing? What's the character of believing? What's the basis for belonging? And how might our belonging motivate our believing? We're going to get all that hopefully from eight verses. If you're able to, we're going to be in Isaiah 56. I wonder if you could stand. Isaiah chapter 56, we'll start in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar. For My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. You can maybe be seated. Whenever you come to a text of Scripture that says, Thus says the Lord, you must know that that means that there's something that came just before to warn him, saying, Thus! Now, we're going to go all George Lucas on you here this week. We're going to tell you one part of the story, and then next week we'll do the prequel. Okay? So 55 is next week, and without stealing too much thunder from the text in 55, suffice it to say, it boils down to this in 55. God has invited a people to his table. And one may come to that table by invitation only, and yet no one is worthy of the invitation. And therefore, anybody who sits there, it was his call, not their merit. And therefore, that is a mark of God's kindness. And in that kindness, there is both gratitude and celebration. That's the 30,000-foot that's the view of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 56 is out to ask this question. What does it look like to believe that God has been kind in that way? What is the character of of believing if you believe that he has been kind and that you have a seat at his table by his invitation and his invitation alone. In the first two verses of this passage, you see the character of belief. The what of believing, the why of believing, and the how of belief. So hear it again. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, my righteousness be revealed, Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, keeps his hand from doing any evil. There it is. There's the character of belief in less than two verses. What does it look like to believe? To believe is to keep justice and to do righteousness. In other words, that which is essential to the nature of God, you begin to reflect that yourself. Not only do you believe certain things about him, you begin to look like him through what is most deepest within you. That's what it looks like to believe. That's what compels your life. It's not complicated. It's nothing more than what you hear another prophet say, the prophet Micah in chapter 6. Maybe you sang that song in your day. Oh, he has shown me, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of me. What is it? What does he require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. That's it. 
It's not easy, but it's not complicated. What does it look like to believe that his kindness has come to you? To keep justice, to do righteousness. In other words, to do as he does. Whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's in your neighborhood, you uphold that which is just. Whether no one is looking, you do what is right. It's hard. It is hard. But it's not complicated. Why though? Why do that? In this text, it says that for those who are in the Lord and who are with the Lord, who walk in his way, there is a salvation that is to be found nowhere else. There is a vindication to be found nowhere else. There is a rescue to be found nowhere else. There are all sorts of versions of being rescued in this life and in this history and in this world. But there is no rescue like the rescue that is spoken of here. And Isaiah doesn't even specify what he really means by it. It's this theological idea that whatever God's rescue is, there is no rescue to be compared with it. And if I might just help you feel that abstract idea, I want to show you a scene from a film that came out a few several years ago called Captain Phillips. It's based on a true story about a tanker that gets assaulted by a band of Somali pirates out in the Atlantic. And they are boarded. And these people threaten to blow up the tanker. Captain Phillips, played Tom Hanks, is the captain of that ship. He loses several of his crew. He comes within an inch of his life. And then security forces swarm in, swoop in, save his life, kill all the pirates. And here in the very last scene of the film... You see a man who's come to within a breath of his own death, in shock, now being treated safely aboard a vessel. Just listen to his words, watch his face, and consider what it means like to feel that you've been rescued like you never dreamt of. Have a seat. Try my shoe. I'm Chief O'Brien. I'll be your corpsman today, okay? Can you please tell me what's going on? Can you talk? Can you tell me what's going on? Yeah, uh, uh, I'm okay. Are you okay? Because you don't look okay. Are you in any pain right now? Are you in any pain uh, right now? Uh, right there on your side. Okay. Let me see it really quick. Can you lift up your arm a little bit? Does that hurt? A little bit? A little bit. Okay. Is it tender? Go ahead and put your arm down. Okay. I need you to look at me. I need you to calm down. I need you to breathe. There you go. Deep breaths. There you go. Very good. Awesome. Now I want you to relax your arm. Okay, we're going to put this little thing on your finger, and we're going to get your heart rate and your oxygen level. Make sure you're breathing okay. Okay. I want you to keep doing that, okay? What happened to your head? Captain, can you tell me what happened to your head? It's okay. Take your time. Take your time. There's a two-centimeter laceration on the left eyebrow. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Okay. I want you to look at me and I want you to breathe. Do you understand? Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. There's about a four centimeter gap. A little laceration there on the left temple. Okay. Very good. All right. You're doing great, okay? Did all this blood come from your eyebrow and your head? What? Did all the blood come from your eyebrow right here and on your head? Well, Where not all that. Of this? No, not all of it. Okay. That's not mine. Okay, all right, all right, look at me. 
Okay, we're gonna lay you down, okay? okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I want you to lay down nice and gently. Nice and gently, okay? Uh, You're okay, I got you. There you go. Uh, Very good. Captain, you're safe now, okay? Thank you. You're welcome. You're okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Does my family know? Your family knows you're safe, and you will be able to call them as soon as you are taken care of. Sir, I need you to breathe, okay? You are safe, and you are fine. It's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be okay. I suppose it's possible that there's at least a few of you in this room who, who, can, who can sympathize with that sense of having been rescued where you came this close to some form of extreme moment and then you were pulled back from the brink. I cannot relate. But surely someone who came that close to death and at the last moment was spared and rescued knows something that we do not. And I only show that to you as an analogy because if somebody can feel a sense of deep rescue in that moment, then I can't imagine how much greater it would be to know that what is promised in the Lord is a kind of rescue that's even greater. And that is what endears us to him and why it is fitting and worthy that we might want to walk in his way. Because in him there is a rescue, and in him there is blessing. Therefore, keeping righteousness and keeping justice and doing righteousness, it's not busy work. It's, it's not out to prove something to him. It's because we've become compelled by something in him. It's the character of belief. And the question is, how, how do you even begin that way? I mean, keep justice, do righteousness. Gee whiz, that's like a big, tall order. Where do you start? Guess what? Good news. He's got an answer. How do you begin to walk in that way on the basis of a vindication and a blessing that comes? Hold on to your seats. Keep the Sabbath. Three times in the passage, you hear Isaiah saying, keep the Sabbath. What, go to church? Have coffee? Uh, sit with people? That's it? It's more than that. Don't deny it. Don't dismiss it. Don't distort it. Don't belittle it. Look, the whole Old Testament is full of laws trying to grapple with what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? And is this keeping and is this not keeping? How do we know? We don't want to dishonor him. And believe me, you read the New Testament at all, you know that the, the singular thread of controversy in Jesus' life is, is he messing with the Sabbath? And he's out to recover the nature of the Sabbath. Now look, it's 2019. And if you're like me, you hear words like keep the Sabbath, your mind might immediately leap to, to Eric Little in you know, Chariots of Fire. You know, the great Irishman, fast runner, sees a kid playing with a soccer ball on the Sabbath and he lightly disciplines him. Ah, son, what are you doing? Why aren't you at the church? And of course, you know how the story unfolds, right? He runs because in God he has his pleasure when he runs and he qualifies for the 100 meters at the Paris Olympics and he shows up and they say, oh, guess what? The run, the race, it's on Sunday. (laughs) How shall I choose? 
to feel God's pleasure when I run or to honor my devotion to the Father by refraining to run on the Sabbath. And he chooses the latter. And, and from our perspective, we look at him and go, dude, you could have won. You would have won. It's just a race. It's not a crime. And he would look at us and say, what if it is? What if it's defrauding something of God? Look, there's another Irishman by the name of Alec Motier who said, look, the Sabbath is not primarily about saying to us, no, 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 can't, not that, not that, not that, no, no. The Sabbath is about, in, in his words, a positive reordering of your life around God. A positive reordering of your life around God. The Sabbath is not primarily about what you abstain from. It's about what you give your attention to. It's about the reordering of your existence. It's, it's choosing the way in which you use your bodies to remind your soul of something that perhaps gets lost in the shuffle in the other six days. What do you and I need to be reminded of on a day like this? That there is a God and you are not He. That you are utterly dependent in a way you may not want to admit. That you are more frail than you might ever want to think. And it is the way we conduct ourselves on this day, a day unlike we conduct ourselves on other days, that is meant not simply to restore us so that we can get back to the important stuff. It's about to renew something in us. That the other important stuff doesn't become too important. That's the... That's the beginning of the answer of how do you begin to believe? And it's how it relates to the other two things you hear about him say about the how to believe. It says, first of all, don't give your hand to evil. Keep your hand away from evil entirely. Yeah, great. How do I do that? I know one way you are more given to evil. When you are pushed to an extreme. When you are overburdened and weary, you give yourself, I give myself to choices and decisions and habits that lead to my loss. And I have to have something to say to me, let it go. I keep my hand from evil. When I set aside some time to give myself, which reminds me of who he is. It's not that work is inherently tempting. It's just that overwork is. And so not only does he say, keep the Sabbath, keep your hand from evil, he also says, hold fast the covenant. What? What? Oh, it sounds like a Bible thing to say. Embroider it. Put it on a kid's craft. What does that mean? It means remembering his promises. And you may think, I already believe in them. And I would say, with all humility, sometimes you do. Sometimes I do. And it is only by renewing our sense of them, hearing them, reflecting upon them, that you and I avoid getting into the spirituality via Clark W. Griswold, who walks with his wife to the edge of the Grand Canyon and looks upon the vastness of the landscape before him and in two seconds says, great, let's go. Taking it in, not a whit. 
I know that we say all sorts of things on a Sunday that we say we believe, but by Wednesday, it's at the bottom of the canyon. And therefore, to keep the Sabbath is to put before our minds and our hearts to reflect even on the simplest things so that that which we say we believe may actually be what we believe by even the following Sunday. Because if we don't reflect, if we don't renew, if we don't meditate upon those things, then it will be like a garden left to itself, which will have weeds, and those weeds will choke out the life. This, friends, is the character of believing. It's not easy. It's not complicated. But when it comes to the character of believing... You might say that this passage is more interested in something else, not even just what does it look like to believe. I think more importantly, it wants to tell us what is the basis of our belonging. And it does so in a most remarkable way because it puts forth before us the concerns of two different kinds of people that you might say in our day might think of themselves as the ones who say, I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo, what in the world am I doing here? I don't belong here. Of whom does it speak? Foreigners and eunuchs. Now there's a Netflix special. Imagine the screenplay. What does it say of those foreigners and eunuchs there in verse 3? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Out of the blue, Isaiah invokes the concerns of two very distinct constituencies who have a common concern. If you're a foreigner, if you're not an ethnic Israelite, then you might wonder, Will I ever feel fully at home among this people? You don't have any stake in the land. So am I going to be on the outside looking in? And if you're a eunuch, if you have lost the ability to procreate, whether through an accident or whether through design, the question in your head is, if this is a people who've been given a promise that they shall produce countless descendants, more than the grains of sand on the shore, then if I have no part in that, Do I have a part in them? What both of these folks, these constituencies represent, are people who wonder, will I ever be anything than feeling flat-footed and with a lack of fluency among this people? Will I ever be able to make a mark on the world that has any meaning? And the thing about these two constituencies, it's, it's a hard thing to hear. Even encoded into the law, There are laws that prohibit full access to those who are of certain ethnicities and those who have been eunuchs. Why? Because both of those represent people who at at different times have infiltrated the life of Israel and saw to its ruin. And now these foreigners and these eunuchs are wondering, are we going to be on the outside looking in all the time? Mark Zuckerberg, he wanted to do something, in his own words, substantial, that he might be included in those exclusive clubs. And if you're a foreigner and a eunuch, you're wondering if you'll, you, you can't do anything substantial. You're stuck so far as you know. That's the condition 
they find themselves in and they're wondering if they'll ever be on the inside or if they'll always be on the outside. And that's the unique thing about this that, that I think resonates with maybe us in a different way. Here are two kinds of people who wonder if they're going to be excluded based upon what everybody knows about them. Whereas in our day, I think there's a fear that runs in many of us that wonders if we'll be excluded once somebody finds out something that they don't know about us. I've mentioned um, David Foster Wallace to you on a number of occasions. He's an author that died several years ago, and he made this observation. The more people think you're great, the bigger the fear of being a fraud is. The more that people think you're great, the bigger the fear of being found a fraud. If you have worked hard to get into this club and stay in this club, the greater the terror of actually being found out for who you are in your fullness, in which case you get booted. So here we have people in Isaiah 56 who are wondering if they're always going to be on the outside looking in. And here we have in our 2019 people who may be in, but who are wondering if they're going to get kicked out once everybody knows the fullness thereof. What is the answer that God offers people like that? What is the answer? Absalom was King David's son. And he was never partnered, never married, had no children. And it says in 2 Samuel 18 that he set up a pillar, a pillar in a renowned field, and he put his own name on it. Why? So that he would not be unremembered. And what he demonstrates in a moment like that is a certain concern that all of us. If you go, if you go watch the movie Interstellar, there's a moment where Matt Damon says to us all. Do you know the one thing that you're going to remember in your last dying breath? You're going to think of your kids. Because it's your one last ditch effort to remember that you might survive. You might survive your own death. And so what does Absalom do? He sets up some way that his name might not be unremembered. What is the Lord's answer to people that wonder if they'll ever feel like they're part of the group or ever wonder if they'll never make a mark on this world of any meaning? It's what he says to the eunuchs there. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you know how wild that is? Because if in the law a eunuch had a limitation placed upon them to be part of that assembly, Isaiah is saying, this eunuch shall be welcomed fully in. And you and I, we hear those laws and we feel like that's so troubling. Why would, why would that be? And yet it's because in part we don't know what to grapple with what Isaiah said in chapter 6. Of God being a holy God. And Isaiah himself being, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Among a people of unclean lips. He is woeful about the holiness of God and the lack thereof in him. And you and I hear that go, yeah, relax, man. It's, you know, don't get too crazy about the holiness. But look, there's that silly commercial about this wireless company that says, you know, when it comes to finding a surgeon, you don't want an okay surgeon. 
You know, a surgeon walks into your room, hey, how you doing? Nervous about the surgery? Yeah, a little. And the doctor says, yeah, me too. <laughs> you, you don't want that one. You want to move on. You want to find somebody else. You don't want an okay surgeon. Friends, you don't want a mildly holy God. You don't want a somewhat holy God that would say, you know, it's just a little porn. You know, it's just a little lie, a little deceit. You know what? A little self-hatred never hurt anybody. You want a holy God. But you also want a holy God that speaks like this unto people who always will think that they're going to be on the fringe of his favor. And to these eunuchs, he says, I know there is no chance you will make a mark on history in terms of who your children are and sort of biological children, but don't think for a minute that your name will go unremembered. Your name will be in my name, and therefore your name will outlast anything that even sons and daughters can provide another. And the encouragement is no less to those who are foreigners, who think themselves on the fringes, who think because they don't have a Jewish name or weren't sired by a Jewish mom, that therefore they're all going to be in a second, sort of a second tier. And what does God say to them? What does God say to them through Isaiah? You know what? You'll come to my mountain. And you will find delight in me. And you will be able to make sacrifices to me and we will receive them by way of communion. And you will come and pray to me and your prayers will be heard as much as anybody that has a Jewish name to it because my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. The basis for belonging, Isaiah is saying, is not about whether you're going to not feel flat-footed among a people. It's not going to have to do whether you're going to make a mark on this world by your physical progeny. The basis for your belonging will be on God's desire alone for you to walk in the character of believing. Not what you've done, not who you are, not whether or not you could ever get into the Porcellian Club, but on the basis of his desire for you. But there's the rub. When it comes to God's desire for us to walk in his way, I suppose the eunuchs and the foreigners will go, you know, didn't really work out well for Israel. God certainly had a desire for them to walk in his way. The problem was they didn't have a desire so what's to say that eunuchs or foreigners might have any other basis for believing that they might walk in that same way? That's why we have to get to the third part of what he has to say. The character of believing is not easy, but it's not complicated. The basis for our belonging is his desire, not ours. But when it comes to believing, that will be compelled by our belonging. And how does our belonging compel or motivate our believing? It's what you hear in the last verse. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's it. The Lord, in his heart, gathers outcasts. If all you want to do this afternoon to keep the Sabbath by reflecting upon a promise, just let that sentence stick in your head for several minutes. The Lord gathers the outcasts. That's his person, 
That's his nature. Adam and Eve, they thought themselves more competent than God and sought their own way and they experienced loss. Israel thought themselves more competent and sought their own way and cozied up with all number of different powers and lovers and they experienced loss. And God, what does he do? He goes after them. And he gathers the outcasts. Either the ones that put themselves cast out or the ones who by some sort of providence or fate of history finds themselves on the outside looking in. He gathers the outcasts. It's what he does. It's how he is. And never has the world seen God gather the outcasts as vividly or as powerfully than in the one who fulfills this passage like no one had. If you put the word Jesus up against the word outcasts, there are all sorts of connections. He hung out with them. He ate with them. He spoke with them. He loved them. He got in their space. He let them get in his space. Lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners of whatever stripe. He's with them. He's for them. He gathers the outcasts by going to them. And we know that early in Jesus' ministry, he says straight up, I have come for the house of Israel. And then we know, though, in the famous passage in John chapter 10, speaking of himself as the good shepherd, he speaks of other sheep that are not of this fold who will hear my voice and they will come into me and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Who's he talking about? Those who weren't Jews. The foreigners. The foreigners who wondered if they'd ever have a seat at the table. Jesus is saying, you have a seat at the table because I'm going to call you unto myself. And that's why Paul says later to the church of Gentile Galatians, hey, guess what? If you're in Christ, there is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, any of those distinctions that are still distinctions will not keep you out of my people. My salvation, my rescue is for you regardless of how you are different in other ways. That's his promise. That's his nature. And when it comes to the foreigners, that's how he works. But what about those that are like eunuchs? What are those who are afraid that they will never make their mark on this world of any meaning? In Matthew 19, when the disciples ask Jesus all about marriage, and he lays it down pretty clear about what the nature of marriage is and what the Lord has brought together, let no man tear asunder, the first words out of his disciples' mouth were, wow, maybe then none of us should marry. The bar sounds either high. And then Jesus, sort of out of the blue, says, you know what? In this life, there are eunuchs that were born that way. There are eunuchs who are made that way. And there are eunuchs who became eunuchs and chose to be eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And in that moment, Jesus is telegraphing something. He is identifying with the eunuchs of this world by acting as one who is a eunuch himself, who did not put his hope or his glory in having physical progeny, but instead was content to believe that God would give him a name everlasting simply by becoming totally devoted unto him for that reason. And that's why we had Matt read to you Acts chapter 8. Because you notice several threads that come together in a single moment. A foreigner, an Ethiopian, who's a eunuch, it says, in the house of Candace, the Ethiopian queen. And what is he reading? Isaiah. It's the trifecta, man. A foreigner and a eunuch who's a eunuch reading Isaiah. 
Of whom is this man writing, himself or someone else? Hey, look, water. Why can't I be baptized? Congratulations. We've just seen Isaiah 56 fulfilled. The one who called foreigners to himself and took on the life essentially of a eunuch in himself. He is the one that brings them together that they might become part of the people of God. That's his way. He gathers the outcasts. You know what it looks like? Oh, this may be too trivial of a picture of doing so, but here in the last scene of Stranger Things Season 2, it's a middle school dance, and Dustin is the geeky dude, the only guy with a mullet in the whole room. And here is his attempt to find somebody to dance with, and, well, here's how it goes. Wish me luck, Mike. I'm going in. Stacy. 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 Yeah. Shall we? Um. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy, the sort of the matriarch of the crew of the posse, she sees the one who thinks he's a weirdo and a creep and he doesn't belong here. And she leaves the comfort of the center of the stage and goes outside to bring him in, to invite him to dance, to discover what it means to dance in step with her. Friends, call it silly if you will, But the Lord Jesus gathers the outcasts by going to the outcasts, by becoming an outcast himself to invite us into a dance in which we might learn to walk and dance as he does. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus, his crucifixion, was carried on outside the camp because they didn't want to defile the city. He is treated as an outcast. Why? so that we who are estranged from God might be brought into his family. The Lord gathers the outcasts by becoming an outcast himself so that he might invite us into his family and learn how to dance as he does. That is the gospel. And that is not a seeking out after your own glory. It is what compels the desire to reflect his glory in yourself and sometimes in spite of yourself. That is his good news. 
That is how we come to belong. And that is how we come to believe. By believing that he gathered an outcast by becoming one himself for our sake. It is why we go to outcasts ourselves, because we knew ourselves to be the same. And it is why we give thanks to him that he did not think us beneath him to do so. Let's pray. Father, help us not to confuse the two things of belonging and believing. We do not trust you in order to belong to you. Instead, we trust that we belong to you because you have trusted your son and entrusted us to your son. Father, help us to see those who think themselves on the fringes of your favor to know that there is a God who comes for outcasts. Help us to see ourselves in the same light that we might rest in a love that is everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.